Welcome to the Connectomics podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. My guest for today is Laura Mojica. She is a unit mate here at OIST, somebody who has maybe a slightly different, say, history of theorizing um, from a lot of inactive thinkers. Uh, she has a, her basis in analytic philosophy and I think um, wheels that well within the inactive vocabulary and, and to good effect. So I think um, she has a quite a original voice in this space and is, is definitely somebody worth paying attention to. Um, the conversation really did go where I'd, I hoped it would go. Um, so Laura is very focused on questions of normativity, but uh, I, I think in a, in a, a natural, uh, you know, a, a very uh, fluid sense, it got to a conversation about uh, the intersection of embodied cognitive science and uh, topics of cultural concern and so on and really as I've kind of stated or highlighted in this podcast that that's part of the aim here so um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation whether you come from an embodied cognitive science background or not I think there's a lot here and uh, yeah without further ado I give you Laura Mohica. Hello Laura. Hello Mark. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, so it's good to have you here. It's good to have this conversation. We've talked about having this conversation for a while and kind of messed around with various things that we should talk about and maybe could talk about. Um, and I think the thing we've settled on as a general theme um is really the theme, I think, that's at the heart of your work too and very much at the heart of your PhD thesis. And uh, that's the notion of normativity. And I think to, to anybody listening to this podcast, they will have some sense of what that means or what that entails. Um, if they don't, they definitely will by the end of it. Um, but for you, um, why is this question... What, you know, both at what point did it emerge for you as an important question and what is it about the question itself or why why this focus, right? There's a lot of things that touch off normativity. There's a lot of ways you can approach it. Um, but you approach it, in some sense, from an abstract philosophical perspective. Uh, 
yeah, can you give us a bit of that kind of intellectual history? Yeah, right. So when I started, my main focus was actually affectivity. I was interested on emotions and moods and in general, whether being a life creature implies having some sort of affectivity. And the more I tried to, to get into that question and to find out what it was, I found that the, the more fundamental question was how we can tell whether something can have a meaningful relationship with the environment, right? Mm. So um, instead of just affectivity, you have you feel, I thought it's more fundamental to know what is what is meaningful for something, or what are the conditions for meaning to arise, let's say, a meaningful relationship. And those conditions are precisely normativity. So what I'm what I'm looking for in, in my in my thesis is to to find where is this switch in nature, this jump from quantity to quality, so to speak, that gives us uh, a differentiation between things that are better and are, or worse, which is the most basic sense of normativity. Mm-hmm. And then from there, from this basic uh, difference, this basic distinction, you already have some for, form of affectivity. Uh, but you can build a lot of other distinctions, a lot of other meaningful and normative terms. So that was the the idea. So I, I couldn't I couldn't get anywhere. I, I felt that I couldn't get anywhere without answering the, this fundamental question of how, in principle, we tell things apart, mm-hmm. rather than just being indifferent to everything. Right, right. So, in some way, any effective realization is already a normative realization. So there's a more general notion that you're trying to capture. Exactly. And does that mean that still your interests lie more in the domain of affectivity um, such that you want to bring this conversation back into that or have they broadened to the point now that you... No, I'm definitely still interested in affectivity and in moods. But then I haven't been able to to pin down how exactly I'm interested in that. Because, yes, I, I, I do see that whenever you make normative distinctions and when you're subjected to normative conditions, you're subjected to feel in different ways, to, to tell whether something is important or not and to care about different things, right? So mm-hmm. I am very much interested in that component and that dimension. And I would like to take it to... That, that's the question. I don't know exactly how I'd like to take it, because then, of course, it, it has implications for how we human beings construct our our normativities and our affectivities, but also how we think of animal life and even mm. vegetable life in, on right. those terms. Right. So it's I see that there are important implications, but it's still very wide. You know? mm. Yeah, at its basic, it's a kind of valued relationship of a living thing to its environment, right, or even to itself. Um, I I'm a bit conscious, um, actually, that I said at the start, everybody will have some sense of what we mean by normativity. No, but no. <laughs> but when we start talking about it, right, there's there's maybe a bit more to it. So I'm wondering if you can kind of backtrack a little bit and and give us your stance or your basic take on. Yeah, sure. I just, I, yeah. So whenever I say that I work on normativity, often people think that I'm working on, you know, what's 
good or wrong, what's like an like ethical, ethical question. Exactly, an ethical question. And of course, this would follow at some point, but I'm, mm-hmm. uh, the, the way that I understand normativity is a much basic one, which is, um, for, to start with, it's a relationship. It's not just an abstract norm, but it's a relationship in which the agent, or one of the terms of the relationship, can make a difference between things as better and worse, rather than than being completely indifferent to what happens, right? So it's a, an extremely basic sense of um, this, being able to do this distinction, and as well as being able to to make a mistake. So we can think of a um, very basic example of a very basic form of life, which is the bacteria, that uh, it can tell whether there is food or is not food. And then there is this basic distinction, this basic normativity that having food is better than not having food. Mm-hmm. And um, and this also implies that there are conditions in which the bacteria can make a mistake, like following the gradient where there is no more food, right? So it's this extremely basic sense of of something better from distinct from something worse mm. uh that's the, the kind of normativity and interest i'm interested and yeah so it's it's not only that part exactly so it, then once you have these phenomena in nature that you see that there are many forms of life that can make this difference mm. then you can see how it becomes more complex and complex and then we have not only the ethical normativities that we have but some other sorts of, of normativities, like what's a good use of language and what's a, not, uh, a bad use of language or what it means to be a good academic or so, what it means to have a good life or so, or, or, or a bad life and so on. Yeah, all these aesthetic uh, kind of considerations emerge too, right? And yeah, when you, when you, I suppose, get to the core that is normativity or get to that question, um, and you see that as the general term, you start to realize that these are all manifestations of that basic kind of dynamic. Um, so you said something there that I think uh, maybe, at least from my perspective, helps us kind of ground the conversation in um, some of the frameworks that you have been using to think about normativity. So you talked about the bacteria um, and that having a kind of very basic instantiation um, can you tell us a bit about your frameworks and, um, yeah, maybe how you're bringing them to bear in this question? Okay, so the very, very general framework is the way that I understand cognition. Mm. So, of course, these questions are not are, are made within the general question of of what what is cognition and how to explain it, how to conceive it. So, I think that cognition is. Uh, a way of establishing a relationship with the world that is meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of, so we, we have a fundamental difference between stone that you throw and then it just interacts with the environment. It breaks, let's say it breaks a glass, uh, but there is, it doesn't make a difference for the stone. Whereas when you have cognition, you have a meaningful relationship in which if you throw, I don't know, it's a bit cruel, but if you throw a cat, then the cat is going <laughs> to feel things, right? He's not going to be indifferent. Laura so. has a lovely cat that she's very kind to, so just <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> Although she does try and sell the cat to me from time to time. It's a gift, Mark. <laughs> it's going to be for free. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we have this, this, this distinction. 
And I think that meaning there uh, has two essential components. One of them is affectivity, for example, and it comes with being a living body. So it's a body that is, uh, it has to keep in itself, like feeding itself, taking care of itself to maintain itself alive. Uh, and that makes a, a big difference uh, from being a stone, right? That it does it. That it um, it doesn't have to to do anything to be what it is. Right. So, uh, so that that implies that there is an element of care. It's an element of, of things matter because I want to keep myself alive, and that's like the basic understanding of 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 cognition in an active terms. Mm-hmm. And then the second component is that things matter because they have practical consequences. So, one of the things that are fundamental throughout the way that I understand everything is that you cannot make a difference. You cannot do like say that for sure there is some meaningful, meaningful interaction here if there is not a possibility to make a difference in what's going to happen. So let's say the bacteria has the, the opportunity to choose whether to to swim in straight line or to tumble upon and then find, find food, whereas a stone doesn't have any choice. The cat will have the choice to fight me back or to just run away from me, whereas the stone does not. And then because you have suddenly in nature these kind of systems that are able to make a difference to themselves and to the environment, then you have meaning when you have this, this possibility of, of, you know, of selecting something over another, another uh, way of interacting. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, so... Um, a lot of things come to mind uh, when you start to tie these things together, but I guess the thing that comes to mind for me is you're really talking about what we talk about in terms of embodiment, right? The, yeah. the kind of centrality of the body and its organization and how that establishes a kind of meaningful, valued relationship to the world. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you conceive of embodiment? Beyond, beyond, or maybe even if you just want to reaffirm those things with that kind yeah. of frame in mind, but well, then the the um, okay. So I, I think we can go in different levels to embodiment. The first general level would be that um, cognition and meaningfulness and normativity is understood as something that happens in a living body, rather than. A program or an abstract norm that is, I don't know, whatever in a very platonic way of understanding it, then it's it's a material realization of what it is. That would be a, like a very basic and very general way of understanding it. But then um, the way that I do understand it, that, that we in the community, the active community understand it, is more related to a body that is a living creature and that as a whole system, a complete system, establishes relationships with the world and cares about itself. So I think a crucial, at least what is crucial for me to understand embodiment, is that you don't have identity, you don't have an individual or an agent if it's not a complete system that is uh, like uh, self-sustaining and caring about itself as a whole, rather than like this, this is a uh, clear opposition with other with other approaches that understand the mind as being in the brain or being in a like a, an abstract 
um, program that gets instantiated in the brain or, or whatever. It's rather that the, the, the agency itself and the, the source of meaningfulness, the locus of uh, having a point of view, is the body itself that is there, is precarious and is maintaining itself, right? So for understanding this difference between a, a, a living body that, that is able to do all these things, uh, the, there is a the concept of precariousness that is a, I don't know, it's a beautiful concept of that life can, life is, is by definition something that can end and something that you have to take care of. Whereas stone is not precarious in that sense. Then this this sense of life could end, and then therefore you have to take care of it, gives gives the body also motion and desire to to interact. And again, it's not like a command that is coming from a little man in, inside your brain, but is the a property that emerges from the organization itself of the body. Mm. So that leads me to, to think. It seems you have a body, it's precarious, uh, it's in interaction with its environment and it sees certain things as valuable or otherwise to its ongoing reproduction. Um, but that seems to be a very, say, low level yeah. of normati normativity, right? Like it's a very specific set of concerns. It aims at survival. Um, how do we start to move from that understanding which is you know it's a, i think it's a really powerful insight because we're we're saying we can actually root normativity somewhere but how do we expand from the roots then to get to things that are more maybe of concern or interest well obviously yeah. <laughs> survival is a fundamental interest but i think you know where i'm going yeah but if we're lucky and we have a good life it's not a, a daily thing right. that i think that we were thinking in a daily life so yeah, that's that's a good question. I was also having the feeling that I was talking a bit too much about bacteria and that we should talk no, about... No, but it is a good starting point, right? It gives yeah. us a kind of model. So it's time to come to, to human forms of life. So one of the things that that I I asked in my in my thesis, and is actually I have a paper that is going to be published soon about this question. And the question is how precisely how you transition from these norms that are tied to your survival whether it's something as, as basic as bacteria or or even as, like, um, we have norms tied to to surviving, like, um, our heart has to pump and so on. So how you go from these to other norms that are indifferent to life, to, mm -hmm. I mean, not, not to keep yourself alive, let's say. And we see that in our daily life, we make distinctions that are completely relevant to 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 keeping ourselves alive. So the way that we dress, for example. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Yeah, okay. yeah. So the way that we dress or how we have our hair or whatever is completely irrelevant. So then we have, this, uh, there is this question and I th think that is an open question still in the, in the negative theory of how you make this jump. So we have a story of, of what happens when we're able to, to make this difference. So the story is that we have, um, identities, we build identities in our habits, and you're an expert on that. And this allows us to make a difference. So whatever um, fits to our habits and keep our identities, I don't know, like a philosopher, the identity as, as a 
as a father, as a as a wife or whatever. Mm. So you keep on, on doing things and, and differentiating things in terms of of whether it contributes or not to you being a good father or whether it contributes mm. or not to you being a good academic or a good philosopher. But then the question is how we make this jump. And then I think that the answer you is... You mean how we make the jump from bi- basic biology to maintain maintenance of an identity that has exactly, some sort of... Okay. Exactly. So I think the answer is 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 not it's not going to come as a surprise, but is is our social interactions. So these these other forms of identity that are irrelevant for maintaining our body alive um, are coming from us being social beings that uh, that couldn't wouldn't be able to exist without interacting with others and wouldn't be able to make these differences with others. So here it comes. Um, the insights of sociology and the insights of, of people like Wittgenstein who think that the meaning is constituted with what we do with each other and that we establish these, these games in which we recognize it to each other. We, we make groups in which um, we're, we're able to make a difference in how we interact, with how we correct to each other, mm. how we evaluate each other. So, yeah, so I think that, that the jump from very basic normativity to, to to cognitive normativity, let's say, to be able to do mathematics, is that we build social practices that get an autonomy by themselves, become, they, they, they are beyond one individual doing them, but it's, it's a practice, it's a pattern that is shared. And then you're inserted into this pattern, and then you're able to, to make a difference, to tell differences. So we can, it's, it's quite clear in the case of biological normativity, let's call it, um, that there's something precarious, that there's something like a boundary that needs to be regulated. Um, are we using the same criteria when we extend to the social? Is there something precarious there that needs to be sustained? Is there something analogous to a boundary that um, allows us to function coherently in relationship to those yeah, I wouldn't call it a boundary, but I think that this the, the, the sense of belonging and the, the actual belonging to a community and of interacting with others is precarious and you need to fit it mm. in a, almost in a daily basis. And I think that that came very clear and a bit in a dramatic way in the pandemic when people were not allowed to, to keep on building and fitting these relationships with others. Mm. Uh, so they started to deteriorate, deteriorate. Mm. and of course you 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 can recover them, you can just work to them, but but there is this this precariousness in those relationships that implies that there is some precariousness in your own identity. Mm. So yeah, it is it is not a boundary, but is is I think it as a as two pieces of a puzzle that need to be like mashed together. Sure, sure. There's an, there was an interesting uh, piece of writing or insight I saw emerging at some point during the pandemic that people's memory was fading quite a bit, um, kind of across the board, right? It wasn't isolated to any particular group or whatever, but when people were in isolation, their memories were fading. And that seems to speak a little bit to the, the precariousness. Like we, we not only keep an identity alive, but that identity has... Uh, you know characteristics that are when when reproduced are reproduced as memories a lot of the time 
and you can see in an absence of the network yeah you know the whole the whole network starts to fade right an absence of the possibility to reproduce the network yeah exactly so i think memory is one of the ways that you tell yourself what you belong to and who you are in this mm. like in, in in the community what's your place and of course you can tell it in, in the form of of a of history, of a personal story, and so on, like in a narrative way, but also in the feeling that, feeling grounded in in belonging somewhere, right? So, I don't know, for, for example, if I come to work, I feel that I'm, like, living uh, my career as an academic. So I feel that it's... You, you kind of entered the stream of that identity. Exactly. So the path that I started when I started to study philosophy, almost, ten, no, ten, more than 10 years ago, is like being continued and being written still. Mm. When you stop doing that, then I think there is a sense of loss of memory that could be, I don't know exactly what, what study you're referring to and how exactly the, it was reported that people were... I don't know the details either. Okay. I was just like, that's a good headline. <laughs> It's a good headline, but I can see the, like the feeling of of, I don't have a past that is being written anymore, mm. right? Mm. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, so one thing that jumps to mind for me there is the notion of habit and how, maybe how habit helps to operationalize that. And I wonder, um, in your own work, if that is a notion you rely on, or if you have favorable notions or. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good notion, and it's a good notion that many people are are doing excellent work on, like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually don't use it that much because I think it's. I mean, of course, I do use it, but and I think it refers to the individual, the let's say, like the individual network of putting itself in different practices, like social practices. So I would say, I, when I think of habits, I imagine, let's, let's say you, with your habits of um, being an academic and going to work, but also you have these other habits of of cooking and other habits of going to jiu-jitsu and so on. So different. <laughs> Just <laughs> give my whole backstory here. Yeah, like I'm going to tell the details. Revealing <laughs> details. So you have these, these habits that like are different regions that connect to each other and the, they're told across you and you're the same, like the same body that is knitting them all together, right? So in that sense, I think the notion of habit is, is useful and it's really beautiful to understand one individual. But, but I'm a bit, I tend to be more interested on the, the relation of the individual within the community. So I would be more interested in you and your your friends of jiu-jitsu and see how the how those interactions become a pattern. And of course, each of you have a, these habits, and these habits are are possible because you are together doing this activity that you that is meaningful for all of you. But then I would be interested in the in the practice that it forms, and that the fact that it can become um, like an autonomous system that reproduces itself. And then when you leave, and when all your friends leave, probably there are going to be other people maintaining this this tradition alive, this this mm. practice alive. And that's what I what I tend to be more interested in because I think that's that's this relational than this social character is much more powerful than what has been recognized so far in activism. Mm. 
no, I'm, I'm, I'm lying. It's already been recognized in, in these linguistic bodies and the way that they're trying to understand language. But yeah, that's the notion that I use. But I think there, there, these two notions cannot be understand, understood one without the other, right? Mm-hmm. So you have social practices because you have people having individual habits that keep the thing alive and the thing is alive because it's informing you, it's giving you the conditions for your habits to form. Mm-hmm. So it's this beautiful like circular relationship, like a causal, circular, circular causality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's different ways to conceive of the causality there, but nonetheless, the intuition is one I share. And um, so y- you do. I'm wondering if you've like tried to develop that that in in some sort of detail the the kind of self production of the practice or like conceive of that set of relations and how that is reproduced. Because in a way, you start to see the habit as continuous then with the practice. Yeah. So, well, I think I would need to, I don't know, to, I would need some, a couple of years to, to develop that. Because, so my, my feeling is that not only we have practices as autonomous systems, as, as you said, but also I think the form of life of a, spe- of a species, like, I don't know, especially cats, I don't know, some species. <laughs> cats, we're all cats. I'm not against cats. Cats. Yeah, cats are lovely. So uh, anyway, so you have this evolutionary history of, of species. And I think that that in itself is also an autonomous an autonomous um, system that keeps itself alive as long as it informs the patterns of behavior and interaction of the individual creatures there. So how I'm thinking of it is that you have this long pattern of evolution of this shared form of life of, let's say, human beings through thousands and, and thousands of years. And then you have a, a shorter scale, which be history, contemporary history, in which we, f- we form patterns of our society. And then you have an even shorter time scale of little systems that that emerge and reproduce over time of, for example, practices of how we understand gender. That's that's mm. one of the, of the trendy topics of, of the last... 20 years, I think. Anyway, but then you have these, these even shorter and shorter timescales of, of this shared form of life. Mm-hmm. But then the details of um, of the sustenance of this, it's, I, I don't have, I just have this, this rough picture, picture of a pattern that emerged because people behave in similar ways and people behave in those ways because there is already a pattern that informs the way that they behave in, and in that sense, sure. it reproduces itself. Sure, sure. Um, when I've thought about some s- similar stuff in the past, you can you can you can kind of get there with this notion of situatedness that I know you, you wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, one example that comes to mind is is like a particular bar that has a particular say set of norms, like a, a pub, like um, <laughs> that's all too Irish kind of reference, but. <laughs> Um, so you have this bar, right? And it's, it's a kind of cool bar and it plays a particular kind of music or whatever. And, um, the people who enter the bar, right. And interact in the bar in order for them to kind of attune to the bar and be cool in the bar, 
they have to, in some sense, reflect the norms of the bar, right? So yeah. in the interactive dynamic, um, they're sensitive to things around them and use them as reference points and cues and so on. And in managing their interaction um, in the bar are also reproducing the tendencies of the bar. Yeah. But also in a way kind of transform it, right? So there's some sort of personal uh, agency mm -hmm. or whatever that's introduced there. So there it comes the possibility of selection, which was one of the things that we started with. And unlike, well, this is disputable, but unlike the traditional understanding of physical laws of physics, the behavior of mat no, just matter, um, these practices and these systems have the possibility of agents selecting between different course of actions, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have the bar, then people are allowed to to enact these these norms in different ways, and even to the point that they can change the norms over time. Mm. So there is the possibility of selection that makes it meaningful and makes it mm. underdetermined. Whereas sure. if you have just gravity, then right, right. If you're just showing up in the bar and you can't help but act in bar-like fashion or whatever, and there's no normative selection, exactly, it will be just just like fact of nature of our background. Right, and and that speaks to a kind of vulnerability and a risk and and meaning, right? So you're in the bar and you could act in a kind of a disattuned way and that might be embarrassing or whatever the case is, or maybe you don't care, right? <laughs> and maybe that says something interesting about you too. Um, yeah, so you can really start to see how, like we start with the organization of a, of a, of a basic organism like a bacteria yeah. and somehow we start to, kind of scale up to more and more interesting phenomena. Yeah. Um, I want to say something more about the bar, which is the, the situated character of, of when you go there yeah. and act. So you might not even realize that people are staring at you and that you're being, I don't know, ridiculous. But then the meaning of what you're doing is going gonna, is gonna to have consequences beyond what, what you perceive or not. Right. So, for example... Um, I don't know. Well, I don't know in Irish bars what people, <laughs> what is good and what is wrong to do. But if you do something that is not mm, fitting there, then probably you're not going to be invited anymore. Probably people are going to start to treat you in a different way. And then that, 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 that's part of the meaning of what you do. Mm. Likewise, when you do something good, then like, I mean, fitting in this, in this context, then the meaning is not only what, whatever you're thinking you're doing, but also the consequences that are in this place with these people. So as I said before, meaning is not something that is just in your head and then you, 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 you just put it out in the world, but it's an interaction and this interaction goes beyond your control. And that's the beauty of meaning, right? That it, it's going to have consequences and it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact in your life and you try to steer it to some way but it's going to come back in ways, ways that are unexpected and, and depend on the situation you are, you're in. Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's, I don't want to get too far into, say, philosophical debates around meaning and the nature of meaning and so on, but there's some sense in which it, you can't help but participate in this meaningful flow of activity that's always already there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm wondering... If you have your sights set on or if you have actually 
attempted or maybe even used case studies or if there's some place in particular where you're kind of going, okay, now I have this conceptual uh, architecture I'd like to start thinking about, say, practical concerns. Yeah, well, not yet, as I'm finishing to write in my PhD thesis, but one of the things that I'm, I've been thinking lately is, um, well, racism and white ignorance. When you're not super aware of the historical and social situa situation you're in, you're not very much aware of the implications of, of what you say and what you do. So often we do things and say things or... Yeah, I don't know, imply things that are not okay and they're racist and and we don't know because that's not our intention and it's, it's a meaning situation. So I think that's an interesting phenomenon and that's why I got interested in that. And I think it really connects with uh, with this notion of, of meaning and normativity that is situated and is beyond what the person himself sure, or herself sure, sure. thinks. Yeah, and it, it also, I think, helps make sense of the idea that um, you can have something that is properly understood as kind of structural, right, or, or organizational, and how that works its way into or perceive and enacting, yeah. um, and we can come to act on its behalf even in absence of the awareness that that that's what we're doing, right? So, like yeah. the whole notion of say white fragility and so on, right? You're you're challenged. Um, around some sort of a issue that you might be implicated in and you have this like real visceral reaction where I, I don't see myself in those terms that you're applying to me and you get defensive and so on. Yeah. And through the kind of the perspective, it seems you're, you're articulating, you can see how um, there's, there's something more at work that lives through you and you may have the agency to somehow negate it or counteract it, but part of that might be paying attention to it in the first place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, this part of, I mean, this paying attention to that and realizing that, I think it's a moral responsibility that, I mean, not only white people, of course, not only white people have, but all of us have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and... Do you think, sorry to cut in, but do you think my feeling and, and you know, part of the the kind of promise of an action for me for, for a while has been um, that maybe it's a kind of language that can help us diffuse some of the shame and, and tension and uh, yeah. maybe even apparent guilt and so on around these kinds of issues, right? You can simultaneously see your own agency, so there's a way out. Yeah. But you can also acknowledge the extent to which if you're unreflect, unreflectively immersing yourself in the stream of a particular culture, um, it can start to shape your actions in ways that, you know, in your full awareness, you wouldn't be happy to participate in. Yeah. So, yeah, that's actually a very nice point. So one of the notions that I think it, it's useful here is to make yourself responsible, to own your situation and where you are. But then when you don't do it and when you don't have the tools or the resources for doing that, it's not about guiltiness or about like uh, bad intentions or that you're a mean person or, or so, uh, you know, this, this blame mm. and uh, this play of the victim and the victim, the, well, 
the other one. <laughs> uh, but it's rather whether I have the resources or not and whether I take responsibility of building the resources or not. Mm-hmm. So rather than, than shaming um, shaming you because you have privileges or shaming you because you used to be, I don't know, racist, then it's about building the, the mm-hmm. resources for counteracting this and then you yourself steering and selecting a different a different way mm-hmm. and that actually happened to me I it for me was a sort of realization when I so it was in Colombia I'm part I'm, I'm not I mean I'm a bit white in Colombia right so I do have a bit of this privilege there mm-hmm. in Colombia it's not that we are super indigenous like in Mexico for example in Mexico people tend to be a bit darker but then you do feel this privilege and I heard people saying like I wish I was as white as you as you are. So there's a kind of a, amongst the Latino, but there's a, a scale of light skinness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then later, what I want to tell you is later I learned that there is a, a name for that, which is colorism. Mm. And I found myself like realizing that I was being that. It, it was even more dramatic. You were, say, you were the perpetrator or you were the receiver? I was both. I know I was not the receiver because in, in the Latino community, I'm, um, white let's say and i was like enjoying the privilege of of people not fearing me of people telling me that i have a beautiful skin just because it's it's, it's a bit it's a bit whiter then of yeah. course when i went to europe i realized that i'm not white at all <laughs> it, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not how it is uh, yeah people tell me i've got beautiful skin as well but i can clearly <laughs> see that on the world stage this skin is not beautiful <laughs> For those listening, I'm very pale. <laughs> but yeah, I can see the kind of tension there. Right? Yeah. So I realized then later that that I was being, I was being, you know, like perpetrating these these. Right, unbeknownst to yourself. Yeah, yeah. It and then it, of... it's even more traumatic when you learn about feminism and all these structural uh, mm. things. I realized that when I was a teenager, I wanted. To be a boy, not because I wanted to be trans or anything, but because I wanted those privileges, and I didn't want to, mm. to be, okay, I'm getting personal, but I didn't want to be identified as a dumb woman because I I was like perpetrating myself, this this idea of women cannot be intelligent and women have to be beautiful or super and superficial. Then when I started to learn all the structures, like the the all the patterns and the the, the practical the social practices at work in that way of thinking, I realize I can steer this way. It doesn't mean that I don't feel the tension anymore. And it doesn't mean that that when you when you're both in both ends of receiver and and, and perpetrator, you're not gonna have these feelings of of I don't know, guiltiness and all all of this stuff. But what is beautiful of this is that you have agency and you can build resources to do things differently, right? So one of the ways that work for me is to well, to talk about it, to start with, and to embrace, for example, things about femininity that in my teenage years I would have hated. Mm. Having pink nails would have been impossible when I was a teenager, too feminine, then therefore too dumb. Um, so yeah, and I think that communities like... Uh, for example, gay people that reclaim the term being gay as something for themselves in, in the queer, being queer. In Colombia, they in Bogota at least, they use this word uh, that used to be an insult for gay people. And now after around 15 years, 
they reclaim it and then are now incorp incorporated it. So it's I think it's that's a way of of steering like seeing the the pattern and then try to steer it so then it doesn't perpetuate that. Uh, sure, sure. It's a it's a kind of a keto for you know. Uh, exactly. <laughs> bigotry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, these are fascinating questions, and the the sense of moving towards the possibility of a kind of naturalistic language, if you will, that helps us make sense of more cultural concerns is powerful, right? And, yeah. Uh, I think an action does a good job of that. In, in, in a way, maybe that's what it's best suited for because um, sometimes it, it lacks some of the detail maybe you want for other kinds of very rigorous scientific inquiries, but at a certain scale of analysis, cultural analysis, psychological analysis, um, it seems to work really well, right? We can somehow capture or get a grasp of the whole. We can talk about the normativity and where it comes from. Um, and that seems to be a real promise. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of, I'm not that familiar with, say, cr critical race theory or feminist theory and so on, um, insofar as I don't read an awful lot of it directly, but I, I obviously try and stay sensitive to it. And, you know, questions of embodiment are, are really on the rise there as well. Um, and, yeah, it seems like the prospects for a kind of critical cognitive science in the future is, is something that's more yeah. and more possible. Yeah, I think the the way that we understand embodiment and the way that we see cognition as an interaction that you yourself as a whole organism, as a body mm -hmm. established with the environment, is powerful to see how through your body you're living mm -hmm. uh, these structures that, that we were talking about, that these positions are going to be the victim of the perpetrator. And then that would explain, I think that that, that would give like a beautiful continuous explanation of why people feel in their body these kind of violences, even when it's not a physical violence, right? Right. right. So you can understand um, this, I don't know, post-traumatic stress disorder. and Sure, sure. Even intergenerational traumas, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, I don't think there's been any real work done in that, but it seems kind of ripe for that type of interpretation. You know, previously you were talking about practices and them been inheritable and almost like a floating pattern, right, that perpetuates or yeah. uh, kind of is maintained by individuals within the culture, but it, it, it kind of transcends all that. You can see how um, cultural dispositions that embed some sort of traumatic relationship to events in their past um, might be uh, instantiated by that larger pattern or whatever, might be realized in the individual's. I guess the challenge here is um, to, and and this is what again maybe an active theorizing does well is that we need not to lose sight of individual agency. Right? Exactly. The fact that you are culturally conditioned doesn't negate your possibility for a, a meaningful or a healthy life or whatever it is. And and I think sometimes weirdly, you know these kinds of things get abused where, you know, you see indigenous cultures um, where people reflect on their possibility. Well, they're, they're all traumatized. We need to take their children away. And I know that kind of thing has been happening in 
in Canada for with First Nations people. So, you know, in a manner where we can both acknowledge the cultural conditioning, the structural conditioning and its inheritability and also resist it and realize that any particular individual is not overdetermined by that past. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's quite important because, of course, we don't want to have, again, to re-victimize people. So you're already a victim and then you're a victim as well and you cannot change this. Right, right, right. So I I do find it very powerful of, of an activism that it gives you the power of, I mean, no, you already have the power, but it, it it makes explicit that you have the power of selecting and building resources to do that. And then maybe the concept of habit becomes very handy and useful there and the building different relationships with people. Right, right. Right, because, you know, these things manifest in our habits and we do have some sense of our ability to change and, and modify them as we go. Yeah. Um yeah this is interesting and you know part of the kind of impetus for this podcast was okay we want to talk about cognitive science but we want to talk about it in a way that connects to these larger fields and concerns and uh yeah i think the account you've given today makes that very obvious yeah there's one more thing about about this tension between being situated and like like determined in some to some extent and being able to change things and is that when you realize that you have the power to steer it and you also realize that it makes sense only because you're interacting with others then I think there is an inherent ethical dimension there you have the moral responsibility of keeping resources to yourself precisely to make decisions to select the way that you want to crave your own habits and to build your own society but also to to keep others being able to do so. So we don't want to tell other people what to do. We rather want people to be as um, resourceful, to use the the term that you use often, or to be as as autonomous agents, as as autonomous as they can be. So I think it's an inherent responsibility there. Right, right. Yeah, and I think understood in those terms right like if we take it back a bit and you know we talk about the bar and we talk about these structures of meaning you know and you can see this whole meshwork um, and you can start to see how you know your activity in the meshwork provides the conditions for others um, and that imparts this very uh, acute responsibility right it's not like um, you know the old distinction between kind of a what I intended and what happened gets a bit, it gets, a, I, 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 there's some value in main, you know, there's something about intention that's important, but there's also something about impact that's important yeah. and your words and your activities and so on are the conditions for somebody, somebody else's actions. And so you have to be kind of more and more sensitive to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What is a, what is it, what's your hope for this kind of uh, framework? <laughs> I really hope that uh, we become much more critical in the negative, that we, I mean, that we start working together on, on that. And I think it's already starting to happen. I think that they're already, I mean, for my impression is that people that are in this framework are very sensitive to this. Like we're, we're working on this because we're sensitive to that there are values in cognition by themselves, mm-hmm. that we're situated, that we're embodied, and that there is vulnerability inherently in, in cognitive agents. 
And I think it's there. So you have people like um, Hannah Jagger working on, on epistemology of love so that you can precisely do this recognition of the other. And you have like Michelle Mayesel working on on white ignorance. But I think we, we can give a, a powerful, more articulated approach, of, a critical approach to, to that. So, yeah, so my personal hope would be to contribute to that. Mm. But uh, as a hope for the field is that, that we can integrate, and it is very powerful to integrate these, these concerns that are seem like so far away from cognitive science and so far away from mm. a naturalistic view of the world to make them here, like present in what it means to be a cognitive, a human cognitive agent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In some way, it's a, it's, it's a psychology fit for time in a way, right? Um, you know, psychology has always lended itself in some way to uh, these wider concerns. Um, but there's something about, yeah, these emerging critical stances, and I can't speak for all of them, and, you know, some of them I'm sure I'd be in some opposition to, but um, by and large, the acknowledgement that there's something over and above you that's informing your action in a way that you might not be sensitive to, um, and that that can negatively impact other people. Yeah, if an action can help us do that in some way that makes it genuinely intelligible, I think that's a really yeah. positive value. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, that was, I think we touched on all the topics that I found interesting in my... I think so, yeah. In my faces. One thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing. And it, it definitely intersects with a lot of what we've just talked about, but um, the how do we conceive the individual in light of all this so we talk about um being at least some way animated by these larger structures um but the reality is any of us at any point in our in our lives are animated by much much more than one structure right it's not just like we were involved in uh, one family and you know, one job and and everything is just a perfectly stacked set of norms that it's easy to. So, uh, yeah, have you thoughts on how we conceive the individual? Because we want to retain some notion of an individual agent. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So we, of course, want to retain a notion of an individual agent. And so the way that I think of it is that there is this living creature so we have the boundaries of, of our skin and so on. And then, of course, we're build, building these habits. And the way that I'm thinking is that you're going through all these social practices that intersect and, of course, are messy. You're right there. They're, they are permeate each other and they're part of other larger structures like the country you're, you're from and the country you live in and so on. And then the individual is, for me, this uh, body that is... I mean, it's a living body that is capable to relate to. So outside the boundaries of the individual as, I don't know, like mm, not so definite boundaries, but boundaries that are looking to connect, right? So I know that there are notions of individuality that want to include everything that is part of the structures that allow habits to, to happen, to be part of the identity, individual identity. But I don't believe that's the case. I think that the, the, the individual is actually 
this tendency of connecting with others and with the environment. So I might be very conservative for an active and an activist, but maybe radical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I think the individual is is its body, like we're our bodies, but these bodies are. Mm. have this tendency and are what they are because we we want to interact and if we're not in the in a context in which we can establish interactions then our individuality starts to to wane yeah, and yeah. we lose it yeah okay that's that is uh, an interesting stance the fact that there's something we can point to as an individual and it takes the form of a body but then it is animated by all these other forces yeah um, which are overlapping and sometimes maybe even intention, a lot of the times maybe even intention. Um, and then the the role of the embodied subject, if you will, is to somehow manage and negate these tensions. And Yeah. Yeah, but it's important to keep in mind that, that is, this individual wouldn't exist if it's not situated in these practices and establishing these relationships. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, obviously some practices serve as kind of attractors for the individual and allow allow them to reaffirm their identity. And, you know, even when they're apart from it, like me and jiu-jitsu, <laughs> you know, I'll find myself defaulting to kind of a regulatory activities through my thinking, through my affect yeah. um, that keep me geared into that thing. Right? Yeah. So like even when I'm making sense, totally decoupled from that situation, if it means a lot to me, if it's somehow central to the configuration that is me, um, it's still oriented in my, my sense-making, right? Like yeah, yeah. What I see, what I pay attention to. Where you situate yourself, the place that you go, the the way that you structure your, your daily life. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's also, I mean, it's not that jiu-jitsu lives in you, but you know where to go, let's say. Mm. You know where to orient yourself, as you said. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that I mean, that does, I, I'm not that familiar with the notion, but just kind of tying it in with our previous, our conversation up to this point, the notion of intersectionality, right, where actually some of that intersecting animating forces, um, you can have a situation where somebody is like multiply oppressed, right, By, yeah, because exactly. they occupy some... They occupy a situatedness that relates to the larger holes in ways that marginalize them on multiple fronts or something. Yeah, so it, yeah, this this kind of connection between an action and yeah, I suppose critical feminism or whatever is the kind of general term yeah. seems like it might be a fruitful one. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we can have conversations like more specific to do to different things of of. But these conversations need, need, need to be built. And they're not comfortable conversations. It's not comfortable for people to tell them, yeah. you have these privileges, <laughs> you have this responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think it's, it's very important to have them. Sure. And I think there's a kind of language and a skill that's needed yeah. for us to navigate these better. Yeah. Um, and an action maybe is helpful there too, <laughs> not to yeah. promise the world what an action but. <laughs> Certainly for me, it has been helpful and, and um, you know, 
yeah, they're as you say, they're complex issues, difficult conversations, and uh, you know, they're they're going to be going on for centuries, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. But also not not only for you, you have these privileges for you to not feel guilty about it, but also for for people that are oppressed to not victimize to not victimize themselves. So there is this thing that you find with people that have suffered uh, like mm. violence in some way that psychologically it's very easy to to feel powerless, right? Sure, and sure. to put yourself in the place of a victim often. And you don't want to do that. You want to learn to to to, to do things and to change things that now that you can, now that you're not in the same situation of, of powerlessness in which you're living violence. And I think an action can do that. In that like by highlighting the fact that you are a living body that can make a difference and that can select in the here and now, mm-hmm. then I, I think it's very powerful. I, I find it very useful for me. So, yeah, I would promise a lot from an action as well. Yeah, yeah. In a way, um, you know, we could open up a whole conversation around psychotherapy and psychotherapeutic intervention and all, but there's some sense in which, say, historically, kind of tension in some, say, psychoanalytic positions is that... Um, Freudian stance, right? You have trauma and you need to manage your trauma or whatever. And then you have on the other end of a kind of spectrum, if you want to think about in those terms, you have a kind of Adlerian stance where it's like, um, it's not the trauma that's inhibiting you. It's the fact that you're reproducing this identity that isn't serving you. Um, And some way an action, right, makes sense of both of those things, right? You can have some sort of event that actually sets up a kind of pattern, but you are also in some way a participant in the sustenance of that pattern. Yeah. I mean, you can acknowledge the pattern and also your individual agency. You can maybe relate to your trauma and 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 stop or, you know, interrupt the reproduction of that pattern. Yeah. Um, okay, I think uh, I think we can leave it there. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's good. It's good. It's a good a good place to stop. Okay. Do you have just if anybody wants to get in contact or get in touch, do you have any online presence or maybe share an email or something? I have an an email and I also have a Facebook account. So my email is laura.mojica, M-O-J-I-C-A, 460 at gmail.com. 460. Yeah, 460. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then maybe fa- Facebook would be easier, which is Laura Mojica. Mojica is M-O-J-I-C-A. Okay. I'm surprised you're not pitching your journals. Do you want to pitch your journals? Uh, well, yeah. Okay. So you can find me on, on yeah, you're right, on Google Scholar. Just, just type my name and then you can see. Actually, I have a paper, a beautiful paper that I co-wrote with, um, with a colleague of mine from Mexico in which we develop this idea of, of ethical responsi- moral responsibility as taking care of your autonomy and the autonomy of others. Okay. Then you can find that one in... in I haven't read that. Sounds cool. Scholar. And then other more technical things as yeah. well. I was actually talking about your journal journals. Though, your ah, my journals, these journals. Okay. <laughs> I do have a, a side, side thing. Side hustle. Uh, a side hustle. Yeah. It's, um, I do book binding and my, my little, me and my husband have a little, uh, company that is called Guau, uh, G-U-A-U, coming from Spanish, 
Wow Bookbinding. So you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Nice. Just like that. Yeah. And buy notebooks from me. I can do personalized agendas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the business of receiving mine at the moment and uh, doing some some over and back on the finer details. But I can uh, comment on the quality of the journal and the care and attention that was given to its construction. Yeah, yeah. I, I love doing this. It's a lot of care and a lot of of, of of love going into these journals. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so thank you, Laura. Thank um, you, Mark, for having me. Yeah, we'll have you back sometime. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when, I, when I have a more clear view of what to, where to take these yeah. notions to, to, where to take an activism to a critical place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that would be really cool. Yeah. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye.